to our passage uh, for this morning, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. Hebrews 10, 32 through 39, and if you're looking for the page number in the Bibles and the pews, that's on page 974. We're continuing a Lenten sermon series. Uh, right now, we're in the season of the church year known as Lent, and we're using uh, this book of Hebrews as sort of a window into this season of the church year. Now, sometimes I get the question, well, Lent isn't that uh, kind of a Catholic thing, a Catholic Christian thing, um, or an Eastern Orthodox thing, and it is, but what I often tell people is it's, it's also just a broader Christian, Christian thing. It's something that Catholic Christians and Eastern Orthodox Christians, but also we as Protestants particularly. Uh, participate in as well. The way I like to describe Lent, I've often heard it said, you can only really sing the hymn Amazing Grace if you understand the depths of your own depravity and sin. Otherwise, grace doesn't seem that amazing. And it's the same way with Lent. Lent prepares us as a season of repentance and discipline and fasting for Easter. But we maybe don't fully understand the joy and beauty and goodness of Easter without going through a season like Lent. And so that's where we're at in the church year. And again, we're using this book, uh, this sermon to the Hebrews uh, as kind of a window into that. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. This is what the preacher of this sermon writes to his congregation back then, as well as to us as Christians today. He says, remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And but my righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, pressure makes diamonds, or so the old adage goes. Originally attributed to General George S. Patton, the idea behind that saying is that persevering through opposition, resistance, and difficulty helps us to discover our better qualities as human beings. We become more confident, for instance, when we overcome adversity, more enduring, more assured of our gifts, talents, and abilities, and better able to move forward into whatever it is that we might face next. That's what pressure does. It has a transforming effect on us, putting us in a situation to grow and change, and as a result, to shine ever more brightly like a diamond. That's more or less what the preacher uh, of the book of Hebrews is telling his congregation here as well. He's telling them to persevere in the face of pressure, to endure, to keep going, to stand firm and stick it out to the end. And so very simply, that's what we're going to talk about this third Sunday of Lent together too. Uh, First, we're going to talk about uh, pressure, 
We're going to talk about perseverance in the face of that pressure, and then like always, we're going to end with the gospel. Now, like we've said uh, throughout this series, this book, Hebrews, is actually an early Christian sermon uh, that a preacher, a pastor, wrote to his congregation, and we don't know exactly who wrote it. I've just been referring to the author of this book as the preacher throughout this series, and we don't know who he wrote it to either, uh, who his congregation was or who he was addressing this sermon to. All we really know, which we can sort of pick up just from reading the content of this book, is that the preacher wrote this uh, sermon to encourage this congregation and this church that he was writing to. You see, the congregation uh, that the preacher writes to here was dealing with some opposition. And uh, again, we're not exactly sure of the situation, but from what the preacher tells us, it's clear that this congregation was dealing with some challenges. Uh, For starters, it seems that their attendance in church was a bit down. Uh, the preacher cues us into that in chapter tw- uh, 10, verse 25, where he writes, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Again, we're not sure of the exact circumstances, but for whatever reason, it seems that some members of this congregation have stopped getting together for public worship. They've stopped showing up. Meanwhile, those who were still showing up were apparently feeling a bit defeated themselves. Again, we pick that up from a clue that the preacher gives us in chapter 12, verse 12, where he exhorts his congregation to strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. In other words, there seems to have been sort of a malaise in this church, sort of an air of debilitation or disappointment, a spirit of discouragement. And so the preacher writes to this congregation here and and tells them to buck up a bit. That's what this congregation was dealing with. Attendance was down, people were feeling down too. The whole mood of this church was down. And that's before we even talk about everything in our text here this morning. You see, of all the passages uh, in this book where we get a sense for what this church was dealing with here, this might be the most comprehensive. That's because again in verses 32 through 35 here, the preacher writes, remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence because it will be richly rewarded. There's a few things that we learn uh, from those verses here. Uh, First, we learn that this congregation had endured an earlier time of suffering. And again, we don't know the details, but the preacher seems to imply that it wasn't terribly long after they had converted to the Christian faith, after they had received the light, as he says here. And that makes sense, by the way, from what we know of church history. You see, just like in countries today where Christians aren't the majority population, converting to Christianity in pagan uh, Greco-Roman, in the pagan Greco-Roman world meant that you became an immediate outsider. Being a Christian marked you as different and that had ramifications. For instance, it might affect your job, your business, who would or wouldn't do business with you back in those days. It might affect your relationships with friends or family members. In fact, in some cases, it might even mean the end of those relationships with friends and family members. 
And so that could be what the preacher is referring to here. Uh, the sort of social pressure or stigma that this congregation likely dealt with after their conversion to the Christian faith. What would that pressure have looked like? Well, it varied a bit from place to place uh, in the ancient world, but for this specific congregation, the preacher gives us some details on what they were facing uh, in what, everything else that he writes in this passage. That's because first in verse 33, he says that this congregation was publicly exposed to insult and persecution. What that probably means is that this congregation was being made fun of that they were being ridiculed and mocked for their beliefs as Christians. And again, that fits well with what we know from church history. Uh, for instance, uh, we know that among other things, one of the things that people, uh, pagan believers around Christians would make fun of them for was their belief in the resurrection. Put simply, for most people in the ancient world, the idea of the resurrection, that someone would come back from the dead, was ludicrous. It was absurd. It was something that no one in their right mind would believe. And so the Christians were made fun of for that. Uh, we also know that there were a lot of people who made fun of the Christians for marrying their brothers and sisters, which wasn't true. But because the early Christians referred to each other as brother and sister in Christ, even including married couples, people thought that Christians were encouraging relationships between siblings. And so they would make fun of the early Christian communities for that as well. And finally, we know many pagans accused the early Christians of cannibalism because they were regularly eating the body and blood of this man named Jesus in their weekly worship services. The point is the early Christians were seen as weirdos, as oddities, as nut jobs by the majority pagan population. And so as a result, they were often mocked as such. At times though, the majority population's mistreatment of the early Christians went beyond simple mocking. After all, as the preacher says in verse 34 here, some members of this congregation were imprisoned. We don't know the exact charges uh, that they were dealing with, but one of the common ones that the early Christians faced at that time was their refusal to sacrifice to the emperor. See, by this point in Roman history, the, the Roman emperor had actually been deified and was now considered a living God. It started with uh, Julius Caesar, who two years after his death was deified as Divus Julius, the divine Julius, and then it continued from there with each successive Roman emperor being deified and viewed as a God who people worshiped and even sacrificed to. In fact, in parts of the Roman Empire, it was the law. You had no choice but to worship the emperor and sacrifice to him. But the early Christians obviously refused to do that. They wouldn't sacrifice to Caesar and they wouldn't worship him. In their minds, that was idolatry. And so in places where that was the law, that was one of the things that got the Christians arrested and put in prison, their refusal to worship the emperor. Again, we don't know if that's what the preacher was referring to here, but it was probably something like that. What we do know is that some of these members of this community, of this church, had their property confiscated. Again, that's one of the things that the preacher mentions in verse 34 here. He says this congregation joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property because they knew they had better and lasting possessions. Now, there's a couple ways that that could have happened. Uh, that the members of this congregation could have had their property uh, confiscated. First, like we just talked about, since some of these congregation members were imprisoned, it's possible that their property was stolen while they were in jail. Uh, that's something that happened with some frequency in the ancient world. Oh, Joe's in prison? 
let's raid his house. I've had my eye on his toga collection for a while. That's the sort of thing that people back then would do. But more likely, it's something similar to what happened in Rome in the year 49 CE. That's because in 49, the Roman emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews living in the city of Rome from the city limits. You can actually find a reference to that in Acts chapter 18, verse two. The official reason was, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, most historians think that's a reference to Jesus, that Crestus is simply an alternative spelling of Christ, he, that's the emperor, expelled them from the city. In other words, there were regular disturbances in the Jewish quarter, possibly because of disagreements between uh, religious Jewish people and Christians, who at that time were also mostly Jews themselves. And so Claudius finally threw up his hands and simply kicked them all out, including the Jewish Christians. Now that would have happened quickly. The Jewish people in Rome would not have had a lot of time uh, to prepare for that. Uh, In fact, if you saw Calvin Christian's performance of The Fiddler on the Roof last weekend, you saw something similar to that towards the end of the performance, right? When the Jewish population of Anatevka was expelled from their town. Same thing here. The emperor would have issued a decree and the Jews would have had to leave pretty quickly. They wouldn't have had much time to pack, to sell their belongings, to list their house and sell that either. They would have simply, in a matter of days, maybe weeks, had to leave the city and simply hope that all of their stuff, their home and their possessions would still be there for them when they got back. In that case, that ban on the Jewish people living in Rome lasted three to four years And so in most cases, if and when they returned, their stuff would not have been waiting for them. Overcrowding was a constant population, or uh, sorry, overcrowding of the population was a constant problem in Rome at the time. And so empty houses just sitting there would not have stayed empty for very long. It wouldn't have been long before other people simply would have moved in and taken over those homes and possessions as their own. Again, we don't know for sure if that's what the preacher is referring to here, but some scholars think it is. Some think that this sermon was actually written to a congregation of Jewish Christians in Rome, and others simply think that this this preacher was writing to another group uh, in a different city who had experienced something like that themselves, where the city had kicked out all of the Jewish people, including the Jewish Christians, and that that's why this congregation had experienced loss of their possessions. That's the picture though, okay? Those are the challenges, those are the pressures that this church, this congregation of Christian believers is dealing with. Their attendance was down, they were feeling down too, they'd experienced persecution, which likely included being mocked, imprisoned, and having their property confiscated. And so the preacher writes to them to encourage them in the midst of those challenges here. And us as Christian believers today, for us, it's the same thing. This preacher writes to encourage us in the midst of the challenges that we face as well today. Now I'll be the first to acknowledge that the pressures that we're facing as North American Christians these days are nowhere near the pressures that the early Christians were facing back then. Nor, by the way, are the pressures that we face, at least here in North America these days, uh, anywhere near the pressures that other Christians in other parts of the world are facing today as well. Put simply, we don't deal with the sort of physical or, or material persecution that other Christians have. 
Uh, We're not in danger, for instance, of being put in prison or having our property confiscated. And despite the fear-mongering and anxiety that some Christian leaders and political leaders try to whip up these days, which it seems to me is mostly for their own personal or political gain, I don't see that sort of thing happening anytime soon either. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think it would take some pretty seismic social and legal changes in our country and culture for that to take place. What we are dealing with these days, though, at least I feel this kind of pressure, uh, are some of the other pressures that the early Christians faced. For instance, as we detailed a few weeks ago in our Jonah series with our culture shift from being a Christian culture to a post-Christian culture these days, we are quickly beginning to experience the same sort of outsider or oddity or weirdo status that the early Christians did. But simply, we are uh, in a place now where we can no longer assume that other people, non-believers, those who aren't Christian believers themselves, will think the same way that we do as Christians or believe the same sorts of things that we do or act or live the same way that we live. In fact, we can no longer even assume that people will think it's normal. Uh, For instance, I don't think it's going too far to say that some of the same things that people thought was weird about the early Christians would apply to us today. For instance, the idea of the resurrection, I don't think uh, too many non-Christians these days would see that as a very uh, realistic idea, right? That's kind of starting to be viewed more and more as an absurd or ludicrous idea. Christian community is also kind of seen as strange or different. And just think about some of the things that we do in worship regularly, right? Something like communion. I could easily see somebody asking the question, what do you mean you're eating the body and blood of Jesus? In other words, we're back to a place where we're being seen as different, strange, maybe even mocked, ridiculed, or laughed at. At least, that's what we're dealing with here. In safe, still Christianized West Michigan. But if you go to more secularized parts of the country, it's even more different still. Uh, For instance, a few months ago, I had a really interesting conversation with a a pastor uh, from New York. Uh, He's been uh, in New York City, downtown New York City, uh, for the last 15 years planting a church. And he said for most of those 15 years, um, there's been a number of challenges that he's faced, but one of them that he's had to deal with is an increasingly uh, what he called hostile culture towards Christians in the city. He said that when he first arrived in New York City, which he likes quite a bit, by the way, he said he loves the city, but he said when he first arrived there, uh, a lot of people, when they found out he was a Christian, they just sort of viewed that as strange. Kind of in keeping with our cultures, you do you, I'll do me, what's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is true for me, ethos, people sort of responded to him talking about his faith with, good for you, it's a little weird, but hey, you do you. Now though, he said, It's increasingly being viewed not just as strange, but as a threat. He said people don't just think Christianity is odd anymore. He said that they actually see it as dangerous. And if you're a Christian, you're viewed as dangerous too. I've had other conversations like that with friends who live in post-Christian parts of our country as well. That's the growing situation on the coasts and in the major cities here in our country. And here's the thing. As Tim Keller uh, often said, and he himself did ministry in New York City for a number of decades, uh, as the cities go, the culture goes. 
Cities are the places where we create culture, right? And so as the cities go, the culture goes. And his point was that it won't be long before, if that's the experience that Christians are having in more secularized, post-Christian parts of the country, it won't be long before it's the situation that we have everywhere else too, including here. And so, if that's the case, if that's where we're at and that's where we're heading to a, towards a culture that increasingly sees us as different, as strange, as odd, as weird, and maybe even as a threat, what is our response? What do we do? What's our way forward as people who do hold to the Christian faith and to what we believe in a culture like this? Well, it's not to bury our heads in the sand and pretend it's not happening though many Christian believers these days are trying to do exactly that. Nor is it, by the way, to wage a culture war and try to take back the culture by force, though many Christians are trying to do that as well. Instead, the answer, I think, is right here in our text. What do we do in the face of pressure and insult and changing cultural attitudes towards the Christian faith? Persevere, the preacher says. You need to persevere, he writes, so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And but my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who believe and are saved. You see, that's the antidote to pressure. It's perseverance. Again, pressure makes diamonds. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. If you can just persevere, stick it out, stick with it, you'll discover a depth, a fortitude, a faith deeper than maybe you even knew you had. That's what the preacher is saying to his congregation here. And that, I think, needs to be the response that Christians today take towards the pressures that we are starting to feel too. Because humming along and pretending that it isn't happening and the world isn't changing and everything is just fine and it's, always, it's still the same, that's not going to work. And neither is trying to fight fire with fire and wage some superficial culture war and take the world by storm, which, by the way, is not how Jesus took over this world. Instead, what we are called to do as Christian believers is to faithfully, winsomely, and lovingly persevere. Faithful presence, Tim Keller calls it, where we are faithful to what we believe as Christians and we are present in and with the rest of the culture in a loving and enduring way. Why? Why is that the way forward? Very simply, because it keeps our eyes focused where they need to be. It keeps our eyes focused on the goal. And what did we say was the goal of the Christian life last week? Not heaven, but Jesus. Jesus is the goal. As the preacher puts it in verse 34 here, as Christians we persevere because we know we have a better and lasting possession and that better and lasting possession is Christ. The question is, do we realize that? Do we see him as our goal and the need to persevere towards him? Honestly, that's a question I've been asking myself recently. Do I see Jesus that way? 
Do I see him as a better and lasting possession than whatever else I may want or desire in this life, in this world? Would I be willing to suffer, to stand firm, to endure for him no matter the cost? Am I willing to persevere? I don't know. I don't think I've honestly had to face a situation yet in my life where that sort of thing is on the table. But I want to. I want to be able to persevere that way. And honestly, this season of the church year, Lent, is, pre- is precisely the time to prepare for that. You see, Lent is the arena, the context, the training ground, or at least one of them, where we as Christians learn the art of perseverance. That's what the repentance, discipline, and fasting of this season is all about. It's meant to train us, fortify us, and strengthen us as we prepare for the challenges that we might face as Christian believers today. And that's what the preacher of Hebrews, both for his congregation back then, as well as for us as Christians today, encourages us to do. He encourages us to persevere, to stand strong, to grow in our faith so that when the going gets tough, we are tough enough to keep going. Again, as he says in verse 39 here, we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who believe and are saved. In other words, as Christian believers, we are the ones who persevere. Which brings us to the gospel this morning. Because there's a reason that we can persevere in the face of whatever we might deal with in this world. There's a reason we can deal with the pressure. There's a reason that we can stand firm as Christian believers. And it's this. We know the one who persevered for us. You see, Jesus also endured in a great conflict full of suffering. He also was publicly exposed to insult and persecution. He also stood side by side with those who were so treated. And he also suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of his property, which was his very life. And he did that for us. Will we do the same for him? That's the question. And the answer is that we need to. As his people, we need to persevere. We need to stand firm. We need to hold fast. We need to not shrink back, but instead believe and be saved. That, my friends, is the way of faith. And as Christians, that is the way that we are called to as well. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we face challenges in this world as believers in you, and we always have. In fact, in the waning days before his crucifixion, our Lord and Savior told us that if the world hated him, it would hate us as well. Help us to understand what it looks like to live as persevering people of faith in the midst of that. People who, not, who do not return hatred for hatred, but instead respond with love people who try to live as winsomely faithful witnesses in the midst of this world, people who persevere and keep our eyes on the goal, which is you. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Normally, uh, we respond with song at this time. Uh, we're actually going to respond in a little bit different way this morning. We just talked about perseverance in the face of sort of external pressure. Um, but we're going to hear from a member of our congregation who has had to persevere in the face actually of, of pressure from his own body and from disease and sickness. Uh, so I'd like to invite Dale Boss up at this time. and. Uh, Dale and I are going to have a conversation together um, where, as part of this, Dale is uh, going to give him or give his testimony. So I've got blue for him. So, welcome. Thank you. You, you I'm like. I'm kind of in Ashley's boat here. I was just about to say, you told me before the service you feel very much like Ashley. And then he said, I don't know how you do this week after week. Um, so. Uh, but I have confidence in you. Uh, you have, have told me before, so six years ago, you received life-changing news. Do you mind sharing a bit about what that was? Six years ago, um, I had, was dealing with my third operation for Crohn's disease, and my doctor said that we should ramp up how I'm treating that, so we started a new treatment. And kind of as an afterthought, the doctor recommended, given my history of cancer, because I've had cancer in my lymph nodes, um, much skin cancer, um, cancer on my kidney, that I should have a PET scan. Had the PET scan and came back and the doc it said, there's a few things that lit up and we can kind of ignore that and check it out in a few months or we can do a biopsy. Well, that was a no-brainer for me, given how much cancer I've had. And so we did a biopsy, um, came back for the results, had a sense of foreboding, um, which is not normal. Uh, it's kind of like the Lord was warning me to be ready. And it came back as lung cancer, even though it wasn't really mainly in my lungs, it was a little bit in my lungs, but in my lymph nodes. Um, and went to the radiation guy. He told me he couldn't do anything. It was too widespread. Um, he classified it as highest stage 3B, um, which when you hear that and you hear the words life-threatening, that changes your perspective in life. Um, went, got referred to um, an oncologist, and he basically asked me if I wanted to hear a sugar-coated version or if I wanted to hear the truth. <laughs> and that was kind of a no-brainer as well. Um, and he told me I had one to three years to live, so. Now you've, you've described that to me before as, like you said, life-changing news. Um, you know, you hear the words life-threatening. Uh, what were some ways that that changed uh, your approach to life, um, your approach to relationships, your faith? Uh, what, what sort of effect did that have on you? Well, one of, my, one of the verses that's been kind of one of my favorite verses for a long time is when in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul is talking about a thorn in the flesh. I've had this Crohn's disease. I've had a lot of other things. And, you know, Paul was asking uh, to have the thorn removed. I don't necessarily ask to have the thorn removed. God says his grace is sufficient. Um, his power is made perfect in weakness. I have found for myself, when things are going just smoothly and stuff, my faith gets weaker. 
So mm. if I have something like Crohn's or cancer, I get a whole lot more focused in my faith. Um, not that I recommend getting cancer <laughs> uh, or wish it on anybody, but for me, it's not necessarily what I would call a bad thing. Um, it focuses me on day-to-day -day life. Um, it helps me remember who provides. That was one of the first things when you hear one to three years, it's like, who's gonna provide for my wife? And you, you think about it for a while, and then you realize, hey, dummy, the same person, the same God that's been providing is gonna provide for her. He's been providing for you all these years. Um, so it's an education. It, you, you have to remember what's going on. I feel like God often says, hey, dummy, to me. Um, I, so you've, you've talked about some of the changes. So that's kind of your personal faith and like your um, trust in God. Um, but you've also just talked about the ways in which uh, it's just kind of changed your outlook towards things like sharing your faith or talking about it or even something like this, which you said, you know, if we rewound six years ago before your diagnosis, you getting up in front of the congregation and talking about kind of your testimony, not something you ever would have done. So what are some ways that this has changed uh, just how you, how you kind of live in this world as a Christian believer? Well, one of the things that's an overwhelming feeling I've had over the last few years is um, the words I wake up with often, if not now, when? Mm. And it's kind of like what you talked about last week with today. If you start a habit, you got to start today. I've been one of those, um, nominal is the wrong word, but a um, little bit weak in sharing my faith and being very scared, skittish, about doing that, and the Lord has said, okay, if you're not gonna do it now, when are you gonna do it? Um, and he makes every day so much easier to live. Kind of live season to season now. Um, it's probably the way I should have lived always, um, but it, it's, it keeps things focused much more on the more important things in life. I don't sweat the little things like I used to, hopefully. Um, but um, it's, it's just the Lord is much more a part of my life in everything, not just talking about it, but just living it. Um, songs have more meaning. Um, I read the Bible every day, and I've always done that for the last decade or whatever. Um, but the words mean a lot more. Um, you just... It just is there, and what you're talking about this morning and last week too is, for so many years, the goal of Christianity was heaven. And that has really switched. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing Jesus. Um, I'm not at all scared of the future. Um, I don't know why God chose me to live and others that have dealt with cancer died quickly, and it's um, it, it, that's hard to understand. Um, but I do know that um, if I'm on this earth, it's for a purpose, and I need to share with others. When I'm at chemo, you can tell there's you can tell when their people are Christians, or you can tell when they're not, and it's a lot easier to share faith 
I'm a long time chemo. Most people are either done or dead. Um, but I see people at, at chemo that are new, deer in headlights look, and they can share why I'm comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, and you, it's just planting seeds. Yeah, talk a little bit more about that. I mean, uh, barring Jesus coming back during our lifetime, right? Like, all of us are going to die. And we know that, to, like, sort of in a way, right? But, like, I'm 35, I'm pretty young and healthy. It's not something I really have to think about that much, but when you receive a diagnosis like you received and then news like one to three years, it kind of puts like a more, like a finer point on it. Like you know in a, in a way, in a more real way than probably most of us, like I am going to die, it's likely to be this disease. What hope do you have looking to the future? What hope do you hold to with that? If for me, it's very simple. Uh, Jesus is my savior. I know where I'm going. Um, when you hear it, you hear one to three years. First of all, you only hear one of those numbers. <laughs> you hear sure. the one. Yeah, yeah. And then when you talk about going on a, a vacation in seven months, you know, we were talking about doing our 20th anniversary thing, and the first reaction from the doctor is flight insurance. That puts everything in very much perspective. You don't look too far out. Um, I try to be a little bit more upbeat than I used to. It's a lot harder to complain hmm. now than it used to be. Hmm. Um, not that I was a whiner. Don't tell anything. <laughs> but um, it, it's, every day is a blessing. And you got to share that with people. Um, every day is a gift from God. You don't know what you're, what you're going to hear. You don't know. I'm 59. I was told this when I was 53. Um, that seems kind of young, but there's others out there that receive this kind of news, and you just got to live your life for Jesus. Hmm. So. Final question. I mean, how do you... How do you feel or experience God's nearness or presence with you uh, in the midst of, of an ongoing diagnosis and disease like this? Well, one of the things that when I initially got this, um, that's about when Ivan Rest died, decided to put names in the bulletin with those with ongoing illnesses like cancer. And I was very reluctant to have my name in there. One of the things, though, that I told people is healing is a, it isn't what's going to happen according to the doctors. That's a miracle if it happens. But I need to pray for peace with it. And I have had peace, and I am so grateful for everybody and all the prayers that have been prayed for me. Um, I, the whole thing has been calm. It, it's not a stress. Um, I have a friend who who's had this kind of conversation with, with the doctors and they ask him for what's your stress level and he puts zeros on everything. I'm not quite that, um, but I'm a nervous Nelly by nature, but at this point, I am completely calm. I, there's, like I said earlier, there's no way I would have been up here um, sharing my faith, um, but the Lord has given me the peace with this I live day to day, um, and I just, 
I have to tell people. I mean, there's a reason why I'm not worried about the cancer. I know where I'm going. And if you want to talk about it, we can talk about it. So. Well, thank you for talking about it today and this morning as part of, uh, in front of us. Uh, stories, Christian stories are incredibly important. It's important for us, it's part of the beauty of the Christian community is the ways in which we get to see uh, each other as brothers and sisters in Christ live out our faith in different ways. And so that's part of why um, when, when you were interested in potentially doing this, we said, yeah, let's, let's definitely do that. Um, so thank you this morning for, for being willing to share your story a little bit. So can we thank Dale together? <laughs> <laughs>